Need a few minutes to reset? Great Minds is a podcast from SBS that guides you through different meditation styles from around the world. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land where this podcast episode was produced. We pay our respects to the Kamaragal people of the Garingai Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you are listening from today. Just a warning that we're talking about some heavy topics in this episode, including bullying and suicide among youth. I think the reality of um, what actually happened to him was a difficult part for us, for Dina and I, to um, accept I used to wish that he died in a car crash or got murdered or anything else, but, um, you know, him taking his own life. Dina and Ali Harkich lost their only son, Alam, when he was just 17 years old. He died by suicide as a result of cyberbullying. Alam was the first cyberbullying victim in Australia to be recognised as a victim of crime in one of Melbourne's courts. When we really assess why and what we did, it was more or less the recognition of his life, that um, his life got taken away by someone or something and he actually, you know, deserved to have a chance to live. And at the end, it was important for us, for him to have a voice and an opportunity to represent himself. And that's what we gave him through Victims of Crime. I'm Ray Johnston, and this is Harmful. Today, we're telling the story of Alam Halkic. His story highlights the devastating impact that cyberbullying can have on an entire community. Alam was taunted and threatened online through social media posts and text messages before he ended his life. His death came as a huge shock to his family and loved ones. It's now been 12 years but his memory lives on. Uh, he was just a caring, caring person. He was well-balanced, travelled. He's seen a lot of different things and understood the suffering, the poor, the rich. And, and when you look at and assess what we created after all those years, um, you know, I, I'm just, you know, one of the most proudest fathers of all time. And even though I had him for a short period of my life, and you know, I think that I'm very, very blessed. If I had to say one thing, what the uniqueness about him, I think he, he had this beautiful, cheeky smile that um, always got his little attention with everybody and, and you just wanted to gravitate to him and, yeah. Julia Capuano was the lawyer who took on Alam's case. She fought hard to get back a little of Alam's lost right to live and thrive, and to help ease his parents' pain. Before Alam's case, Australian courts had never declared that the victims of cyberbullying, who take their own lives, were victims of crime. This case that Julia fought so hard for influenced the justice system in Australia forever. It was quite unique in that To our knowledge, at that time, no one had made an application to the Victims of Crime Assistance Tribunal for a a death by suicide as a result of 
cyberbullying or, or any other stalking such claims. So the firm decided to take the claim on the basis that we wish to assist the family moving forward. Obviously, the, the, the victim, Alum, was deceased and the basis of the application made was um, as a related victim application for the family members that were left behind as a result of that act of violence committed against Alum. The greatest challenge, I think, initially was there was uh, lots of unknowns which, which would have made it difficult for the parents to navigate. However, the law firm decided to, to make the claim on the basis that we, we believed that there was a, a valid application to be made. And it was certainly a very good outcome for the application that was made, given that it was a landmark decision. Very proud to be involved in that, that process. It obviously opens the doors for, for similar claims, but this was a very unique case given that there was an associated death in relation to that act of violence committed against them. Despite the fact that it has been over a decade since Alan's tragic death, his community and those working on the case remain deeply affected by it. Alam's parents' psychologist, Gina Sidoni, has worked with Alam's family extensively. This particular case had quite a profound effect on me and on other people who were working with the family. And um, my role in this situation was, as a psychologist, to assess and assist the parents measuring the impact of the traumatic crime on them. In addition to that, uh, my role is to support the parents through counselling, maybe more than 18 months following the event. So just it's really important to note that when it was formally recognised it was a crime, this gave the parents a sense of recognition that they were victims in a crime. Naturally, any loss of a child, you know, is devastating and suicide is, takes a particularly severe toll on parents. So their presentation at the time was extremely, I couldn't even put it in words, actually. To me, you know, they were both suffering complicated grief of a symptom similar to post-traumatic stress. You know, they were battling with, you know, blame and, and you know, thinking about what they could have done differently to prevent it. They, both of them had the impression that their child was thriving, there were no warning signs, and, you know, just this, you know, internal battle was, was very obvious and very palpable. Ali, Alam's father, still questions himself every day. If he had better understood the virtual world that his son was a part of, could he have done more to save him? You have to look at the contributing factors to what caused him to get to that point. As a parent, you know, we pay for the internet or we gave him the computer or we've paid for that phone. And you really got to assess myself as well, because not that I'm responsible for his death. But, you know, I am a contributing factor to the death. Um, at the end, when we look at it, um, I, I provided him a tool and didn't understand the dangers. Um, I would never ever go and give my son the car keys and say, go drive the car because it needs to be taught and I not understand the risk. 
give him a gun and say, here, go play with that, because we know these things, we can relate to that these things are dangerous. But um, I didn't understand the danger of what the internet was. And if I did now, and that small control or the awareness that I know today, um, there is no doubt in my mind that he would be alive there today. Because just through the education and, and the mechanisms that are in place today that weren't in place before, is that, hey, you know what? You report this and talk to somebody. And unfortunately for him, he tried to deal with it. And that for a teenager, along with all the other factors that happened along that night, got him to the point of um, no return, unfortunately for us. This impact of cyberbullying has had an enormous impact on, on children and young people. And awareness is growing, but there are still many people and many parents out there that don't have an understanding of the internet and they don't have an understanding of, of cyberbullying. When we're talking about a teenage demographic, the reasons why, why a person comes to a decision that suicide is my only option are many. Often, though, the psychological evidence tells us that there's a process which we call cognitive distortions. So what actually happens is the brain creates what we call these cognitive distortions or faulty thinking patterns that can sort of disproportionately focus attention on negative things, negative beliefs, including suicidal thoughts. So teenagers are particularly susceptible to thinking in this type of, it's almost like a um, black and white thinking, which it's thinking in extremes and it's thinking that they don't have any other options. I've thought about this many times and, and although I didn't have an opportunity to meet Alan or to ask him, you know, what he was thinking before um, he committed this act, and I don't think anybody did, was that I would think that that's what was taking place in his mind. He was experiencing text messaging at a level that, you know, I'll give you some examples. I'll put you in hospital. Don't be surprised if you get hit sometime soon. It's payback time. These sort of messages, it just demonstrates they can have very severe consequences. The magistrate of that time said, SMS messages or internet communication may have serious consequences on intended victims, whether it's meant to or not. He further said people should really think about what they are doing instead of hammering some message of hate or aggression. It is a profound message because children in particular and vulnerable people um, so I would class an adolescent as a vulnerable person, would interpret those messages differently, perhaps to, a, to an adult who is, you know, had some more life experiences and understands a little bit more about, you know, cognitive distortions and, and thinking in certain ways that are unhelpful. Whereas um, young people often think that there are no options. So he would have taken those words literally. This is what I think. I think he took those words very literally and I think he thought his life and potentially his family's life was in danger. I remember there was one thing that Dina did pick up. It was, um, you know, a week before he passed away and 
she could hear him upstairs and like he was just aggressively typing and whatever it may be and she went in his room and she says what are you doing and he goes nothing and she was kind of standing over his shoulder and all these little red boxes popped open and um I think he was on MySpace at that point. She come down and can hear him, you know, asking her to leave the room, leave me alone. And I can't come up and I said, mate, like, what's going on? And he goes, nothing, nothing. I think that was the very, very first time I actually got exposed to what social media was. And I said to him, what's all this? And he goes, oh, I'm just chatting away with my friends. The one thing I remember, it was like he had 450 or 500 people like as on his friend list. And I said to him, well, who are all these people? And I said, you didn't, there's no way known you know 500 people. Um, and he said, yeah, no, they're just, you know, people online and whatever it may be. And I honestly did not even think twice about who and what they were. Now that I understand it, any child, you know, who's got more than, you know, probably a dozen friends, in their real life or real people. Um, there's no way known he could have 400, 500 people watching his activity online. You know, the scary part is some of these young people, you know, they, they've got 10,000, 15,000, 100,000 followers. Knowing who's watching him or speaking to him or whatever it may be, they're the danger parts. I mean, a child at that age should never, ever have that much accessibility or exposed to strangers and as much as he was exposed to different types of you know aggression or comments or whatever it may be the weird part about this is is that now not only knowing that his social structure on that was important to him i mean he, he related more to how many people were commenting on his comments or giving him feedback. I mean, it was actually, all those things were affecting him. Um, and, and that's the part that people don't really understand is that the acceptance on social media and, and the position or presence that they have on social media, you know, to young people, it, it seems to be all important thing these days. Unfortunately, cyberbullying is a widespread problem among under-18s in Australia and around the world. eSafety Australia says 44% of young Australians have reported having a negative experience online in the past six months, and 15% have received threats or abuse online. In 2021, there was over 1,000 cyberbullying reports a 69% increase from 2019, and a 31% increase from 2020. Julie Inman-Grant is Australia's eSafety Commissioner. In this role, Julie leads the world's first government regulatory agency committed to keeping its citizens safer online. It wouldn't surprise you to know that where the most youth-based cyberbullying happens is where young people are. So about half of all cyberbullying reports into our office are on Instagram. About 19% are on Snapchat. And kids are leaving Facebook more. They're not using it in the same way that they used to. So about 9% there. And, and surprisingly, only about 8% of our reports are on TikTok. But we're also seeing that often the bullying isn't happening on social media out in the open. So we're seeing a lot more bullying behavior. About 30% of reports are now on direct or instant messaging platforms. 
So a lot of young people will communicate through group chat. And so that's where we're seeing um, a lot more harassment and abuse. And of course, that's more challenging for parents and educators because that kind of abuse is, is highly visible to the group of kids who are on that chat, but largely hidden to parents because they're, they're not sharing in those communications. While the COVID-19 pandemic was a significant contributor to the rise of cyberbullying in Australia and around the world, experts also suggest that adolescents are more vulnerable due to increased access to electronic devices and the internet, and at times, lack of supervision of their online activity. The internet has become an essential utility and certainly to young people during lockdown time um, when they were almost exclusively communicating, socializing, learning, exploring, creating, you name it, on social media. For the first year, uh, we saw about a 32% of increase in reports of cyberbullying coming into our office during the first lockdown period between about March and September of 2020 compared to the same period in 2019. But we also saw, we saw much larger increases in adult cyber abuse, in illegal and harmful content, and including a 172% increase in image-based abuse. We believe that the reason we didn't see a bigger boost in uh, youth-based cyberbullying was still increased by a third. But because, like I said, often cyberbullying is an extension of conflict that's happening within the school community and because kids were separated and that was their primary means of communication. We weren't seeing as much cyberbullying happening, thankfully. But as soon as kids go back to school and interaction happens again, that's, that's when we tend to see more reports of cyberbullying as well. The eSafety Commissioner also offers her advice to parents to help them detect if their child is being bullied online. So often you will see a child who might be, you know, engaged online, withdrawing from their phone, you know, having a particular reaction to a certain message, being more quiet, more withdrawn, maybe not wanting to go to school, not wanting to see friends. One of the things that I started to do with my own kids, we sit around the dinner table and we ask them, how was school? How are your friends? How was sport? We need to actually ask them what's happening to them online and is there any drama? Are there any rumors? What kinds of apps and games are you using? We need to be engaged in our kids' online lives the same way we are their everyday lives. When we did this research on Mind the Gap, we found that 70% of kids told us they actually spoke to their parents about cyberbullying. And only 50% of their parents remembered the conversation. And I think the only explanation there is we know that young people are living their lives out online, particularly after COVID, and they're not making a distinction between their online and offline worlds. So when something terrible happens to them online, it permeates every element of their soul. But we as older adults who didn't grow up with technology being so immersed in our everyday lives, we compartmentalize. So we think, oh, that just happened online. Let's park that and focus on what's happening interpersonally. So I guess when our kids you know, have the courage to come to us and talk to us about what's happening online, we need to listen to them and we need to ask them additional questions. Well, how does this make you feel? Is there something I can do to support? 
is there still damaging commentary about you online? Do you want to go to the e-safety commissioner and report this? We can obviously set up parental controls. We can make sure that kids are using technology in open areas of the homes so that we can see how they're reacting and interacting with their, their phones and their technology. But we have to start having these open conversations and let them know that we will support them no matter what happens. Now, I know a lot of parents panic when they think something's gone wrong online. And what kids fear the most is being judged themselves. They also fear device denial. So we need to make sure that we're not punishing them for things that are happening to them on their phone or on their computers, but, but we're there to support them. Going back to Ali, over the last decade, he has worked tirelessly to educate Australians about the dangers of bullying and cyberbullying. He also inspired a group of passionate individuals to take action. And in 2013, they established Bully Zero. It's a not-for-profit organisation working across Australia to prevent and reduce bullying through evidence-based education, advocacy, and importantly, support. I think that the more I um, accept what's happened to him and more awareness that I bring talking about him, it could make a difference to somebody else's life. And I think that... Once we dealt with tragedy, I, I truly believe that, um, you know, if we try to do good as much as we possibly can to, to make someone's life better in the memory of someone one that you loved, I think there's no better gift that we can give to our friends and families and people just around us. And that's why I do what I need to do. And I said, as much as difficult it is, people might say, you know, well, it's been 12 years, surely, you know, things have changed for the better. But um I think that's one of the biggest lies of mankind. In time, things will get better. Well, I, I've just found in time that things have just got worse for us. Um, the gravity of that loss and the reality of that he's never ever coming home. I, I think that well, I have no choice besides to um, you know just keep talking about him and keep him alive in my memory um, and keep people reminding that um, you know he had the right to live and, and that got taken away from him and I just don't want anybody else uh, not to have that opportunity to try and make a change and as many as people as we possibly can and especially through programs like this that um, bring this awareness and you know if it, it gets one person changing their habits or assessing what their children are up to I think it, you know that's what the end game is for myself so I do it just for the awareness and um, you know to ensure that you know somebody else has a chance where he didn't have a chance I've paid the ultimate price by that I think um, I wish I had that chance just to um, try to help him and unfortunately we didn't we never had that opportunity so that's the tragedy about this he couldn't be saved we couldn't save him thanks for listening to this episode of harmful if you or someone you know needs mental health support you can call lifeline on 131114 or Kids Helpline on 1800-55-1800. If you need to report cyberbullying, you can go to www.esafety.gov.au forward slash report. 
Harmful is hosted by me, Ray Johnston. Produced by Maram Ismail. Listen and follow the podcast in the SBS radio app at sbs.com.au forward slash harmful or in your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to get in touch, you can email the team at harmful at sbs.com.au.